Hello everyone and welcome to the Lisa Burke Show. It's great to have you listening to us here, whether you're based in Luxembourg, across Europe or more globally. And indeed the show today has very much an international flavour. What we're going to talk about has no borders. It's Rare Disease Month. Rare Disease Day is approaching on the 29th of February. And so it's a rare month, 29 days to reflect the people, the communities, the organisations who are working to help the millions of families whose lives are impacted by rare disease. Now, as you can see, if you're watching rather than listening to me, I have four guests joining me from all around the world. And what you won't see is me because of a technical issue, but my guests have managed well to stay online and they're joining me really from all around the world. Crystal Barrett-Lachlan, founder and CEO of Rare Givers, joining us from California. Her prior life was a marketing executive with her own marketing company in California, but she has transitioned now to build up what is now Rare Givers, and we're going to talk much more about that. Paige Rivard, who's her co-CEO, previously she was CEO of the Prada-Willi Syndrome Association in a prior life. Paige herself was a banker and then her life transformed with her children. Her son Jake lives with two rare genetic disorders. Lara Bloom, President and CEO of the Ellert Stanlos Society. She is also an academic affiliate professor of practice in patient engagement and global collaboration at Penn State College of Medicine in the USA. Lara is joining us from the UK. And finally, Mats Boltz-Johnson joining us from Köln, Germany, is the mental health lead and healthcare advisor at Eurodis Rare Disease Europe. And of course, as mentioned, that's based in Köln, Germany. Welcome to you all. Thank, Thank you. you. It's so wonderful. It's Hi, wonderful to have you all with us. And first of all, I want you to tell us a little bit about what rare disease is. I'm going to turn to you, Crystal. Uh, we call it rare disease and in itself it might be a rare disease, but in fact, it's not that rare. No, no. In fact, rare is not rare. Uh, rare families are one in 15 families worldwide. Uh, we have 350 million families that are experiencing uh, life or caring for someone with a rare genetic disease. Um, these are diseases that you may have heard of, cystic fibrosis, uh, ALS, Tay-Sachs disease, also diseases that you haven't heard of, um, Prader-Willi syndrome, Ehlers-Danlos, uh, multiple sclerosis, uh, mucopolysaccharidosis. So very, very far reaching. In fact, more people have a rare disease than AIDS and cancer combined. Well, it's extraordinary. And um, I know that uh, there's about 30 million in the EU Um and it takes an awfully long time to diagnose these. This is another, I mean, there's so many layers to rare disease, but one of the layers of rare disease is, is the length of time it takes to diagnose for a family. And, and in fact, I know that you have experience. In fact, let's talk about that. Your, briefly, your experience of rare disease. Well, yes. So um, in addition to being the co-CEO of Rare Givers, I actually grew up in a rare family. I'm the youngest of five children and three of my four older brothers, David, Jared and Randy, passed away from Hunter syndrome or MPS disease type 2. They were 12, 18 and 19 years old when they passed away. So you can imagine 
the caregiving that was happening within our family. The whole family unit was organized around caring for my brothers. And uh, it's a stress-inducing, very intense um, uh, experience. And certainly the aftermath of their passing has um, rippled through throughout our existence. So it's the sensitivity to the emotional, uh, holistic well-being of the family that is the foundation and the um, inspiration for our work with Rare Givers. Paige, turning to you again, your life changed when you had children. Uh, You had a very different career path and then things switched. Talk to us about your experience of how rare diseases touched your family. Yes, Lisa, um, my husband and I are parents to two beautiful children. Um, Our daughter, Jordan, is 24, and our son, Jake, is 13. And Jake um, came to us a little late in life, so we were older parents, um, but he was diagnosed with two rare genetic disorders, Prader-Willi syndrome and neurofibromatosis. And, you know, his diagnosis happened in the NICU. So we were one of the lucky families to get a diagnosis after about three weeks of Prader-Willi syndrome. NICU, just to say that's the neonatal unit. Yes, yes. And and just to ask other people, uh, I think, uh, Crystal, um, we can hear, oh, it's not you. There's there's a slight uh, rippling in the sound somewhere. Yeah, I think Paige uh, may have shifted her audio to. Um, but we we'll see. Don't keep, worry. Keep talking. Paige, keep yeah. going. That's fine. I, okay, can you hear me now? Yes, I haven't yes. changed any audio, but okay, good. That's good. Um, so yes, he was was diagnosed uh, first with Prader Willi syndrome, um, which is a rare genetic disorder on the fifteenth chromosome. And then about seven months later, he was diagnosed with neurofibromatosis, or NF1, which is a chromosomal disorder on the 17th chromosome. So, um, yes, our life changed drastically when when our son was born. But there are many good things to to talk about later. Yeah, and we will dig into that. Uh, Lara, tell us about your experience then. I know that... um, You've, you've lived through this yourself. You're CEO of the Ehlers-Danlos Society. Talk us through this. Yeah, absolutely. So I was a photographer. That's how I was trained. That's when my career was going and all my hopes and ambitions. And um, I had been symptomatic from the age of 11. And in quite a usual diagnostic odyssey, it took me 13 years to be diagnosed with Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. So I was 24 when I received my diagnosis. And I realized quite quickly that life had to change and I needed to pivot and, and you know, make different dreams and make different ambitions. And one of those was to create a new career pathway. And I actually wanted to become a spy um, and went back to university and studied global politics and international relations. And whilst I was doing that degree, I, I volunteered at the UK support group uh, for Ehlers-Danlos syndromes, ended up running that and five years later left to set up the global organisation, which is the Ehlers-Danlos Society and driven every day really by my own story. But really, I, I often forget I have it myself because the stories I hear every day uh, of people all over the world with all of the different types of EDS. You know, there's 14 different types um, of the condition now, a vast spectrum on every type. And the stories are heartbreaking. The diagnostic odyssey is still that long. It's still really based on geography and wealth as to when you get your diagnosis and when you get it, what your quality of care and management is. So we've come a long way, but not nearly far enough. 
Thank you. Thank you for sharing that, Lara. Of course, I would naturally ask you if you are a spy, but even if you were, you wouldn't be allowed to tell me. Best cover story ever, right? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I'm very much enjoying Carl's, Charles Cummings' books at the moment. I highly recommend them if you're into MI5, MI6 and that life. <laughs> for little yeah, no, my, my wife still isn't quite convinced yet whether it isn't the cover story or not because I travel all the time it's like mm, you're the perfect spy. maybe <laughs> exactly Matt, never know. yes Matt back to Eurydice what is Eurydice and and tell us about uh, your your work with rare disease across Europe um Eurydice is a uh, an uh, uh, an NGO, a non-governmental organisation. We're a network of networks where we've got over a thousand members, patient organisations which got, which represent uh, different communities across the world in different countries, whether they're international federations, European federations, individual patient groups or family groups. Um, and Eurodis really came to into existence about 25 years ago. And it was bringing the community together. And whilst we are individually rare and can be ignored and were being ignored, when we come together and have that collective voice and solidarity, we're 300 million people globally. And that's really hard for policymakers to ignore at a national level uh, or to, I'm based in Europe, it's European level, or at a global level with the UN and the WHO. So our community strength is our members and our diversity is our strength. So we, we come together and um, identify really what the needs are of our community and try and elevate that into the, the spotlight, the policy spotlight or political spotlight with the UN, WHO and Commission. Um, and I've been lucky enough to be working with Eurodis in this community for 10 years now. Mm -hmm. um, before that, I was working with the, the, the community in the UK. Um, uh, and... I mean, it's a, it's a fantastic community. You see brilliant people like many who are on the on this uh, uh, discussion today, um, and you see really inspiring stories where people step out of their daily lives because of the impact of a rare disease, and actually achieve more than I think you know the the people we put on pedestals in society that. Um, mums and dads uh, go to law school to advocate for their kids or work with industry to develop new therapies which are approved within their lifetimes. I mean, it's really inspiring that our community uh, offers hope and tangible results which are achievable in our lifetime. So I'm very lucky to work with our community and, um, yeah, it's, it's a real privilege, if I'm yeah. honest. Well, that, thank you. Thank you so much for explaining the work that you do. I want to just foray back into something that Paige and Lara have uh, both spoken about, which is that in Paige's example with her son Jake, um, the di the first diagnosis came quite early in the neonatal unit. For Lara with that rare disease, it takes much, much longer. And I know, Lara, in a prep chat, you have a very sad story about a 13-year-old girl. Yes, I mean, we, we unfortunately, I hear sad stories all the time, far too often. And always the kind of the link that ties all the stories together is this this lack of belief validation um and acceptance that something is wrong and not just something that is causing anxiety and depression and uh, a mother approached me a while ago about her daughter who um 
was living with EDS and spent a long time getting a diagnosis and in the journey to getting that diagnosis was actually put into a uh, psychiatric unit and told it was in her head and finally she was she was diagnosed with EDS and she was being started to, to be allowed to go home for weekends um, and on the first weekend that she was allowed home um, she was a huge horse rider she loved horses and she went to her stable and um, and she ended up hanging herself at 13 years old and, and dying and she left a note basically saying I, I didn't want to be a burden and no one ever believed me and I you know I, I'm it, no one believed me basically so and it's just it's so avoidable it's so unbelievably avoidable and you know there, there's there's quite a lot of types of EDS where you know life expectancy isn't impacted some are but most are not and the thing that are, are causing people's lives to be shortened can be avoided mm. you know it's that that later diagnosis that that inability to get access to when it's needed when treatments are given and options are given it's more management than treatment it's short term for example physical physical therapy you know people are given six weeks we don't need six weeks we need it for the rest of our lives and it's always thought in terms of acute and not chronic and the whole of the world's healthcare system is built for the acute and not the chronic and 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 rare is is chronic it's it, it doesn't it rarely goes away and it, it's just we're just not built for that and before covid we were getting closer to systemically getting more funding and a little bit more awareness around rare diseases and the importance of uh, multidisciplinary care and and access to clinics especially in the uk and then COVID happened and it set us back and not just back, but it seems like even further than we were, you know, around 2019. So there's huge systemic problems. It's inequitable across the world. Um, and people don't seem to understand that, that rare is many and, and, and the impact that it can make on health economics, quality of life, um, outcomes for families. It's, it's astonishing, really, how short-sighted. Mm -hmm. this systems are well I didn't ask that uh, story about that poor girl who died at the age of 13 to bring out her individual story but more the fact that mental health is severely impacted and the Absolutely. length of diagnosis has a massive impact on that person themselves and the entire family caring unit around that individual and so I want to turn to Crystal here because I know Crystal you have lived this experience and the burden on the family the mental health burden and that's how you have developed in fact rare givers. Yes, yes. And I, I, you know, I have to just take a moment and, and um, delve into this word burden, because I can tell you that the families themselves do not view these experiences as burdens. These are, these yes. are, this is life as they know it, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's certainly medicalized life, but um, there are just a, incredibly beautiful moments that come from caring for a loved one, even as um, you are, are working to um, to support them so often through an end of life experience. So, then, just wanted to give some context. Absolutely, that you're right with that word. Yeah. But then, why did this poor little girl, who a teenager, sure. she used the word burden? So, we have to change yeah. that narrative in society. Then, yes, the stigma. Yes, yes, and you know we we talk about feelings first. Mm. So um, as you as you notice change, right? So first of all, half the patient population is children, 
and a third of those children will not see their fifth birthday. So, so just be aware that, you know, parents are the one that are representing for so many rare families. They're representing um, their, their child loved one. They're also caring for adult loved ones. And as they move through the healthcare system, what isn't happening enough is talking about their feelings. So, so you've got uh, caregivers that are holding the emotional well-being for the whole family, right? And if we could just stop for a moment and start focusing on feelings first, even as we're delivering a diagnosis or as we're coming in for checkup appointments or as we're going through a t- clinical trial or as we're offering treatment options, if we are checking in on the emotional well-being of the patient, of the caregiver, and even the doctors and the nurses and the professional community that is supporting these families. There's severe uh, burnout in the medical community as well. So we have to change the dialogue is the point, right? We just have to open up this awareness that there's a deep emotional impact, a crisis impact emotionally on the whole community. And we don't have to start from scratch. There's amazing uh, awareness within military and veterans families, right? Within senior care and Alzheimer's and dementia uh, family units. So so we can borrow these sort of best practices and bring them into uh, into the rare disease community. So, um, you know, want to give other voices the opportunity to talk. But the the rare giver's emotional journey map is an opportunity. It's a it's a it's a way to start that conversation. You know, and it, and for us, we make these things free and downloadable uh, so that everybody can get access to them to just start the conversation conversation about emotional well-being. Everyone will do better if we're feeling better. Yeah. I'm... And if I could just add Crystal, sorry. I think if you would have asked that girl's mother or any parent or or, or caregiver, do you feel like that person is a burden? They would say absolutely not. not. You know, that that sense of somebody living with the condition being a burden comes from society, it comes from media. Mm-hmm. It comes from you know, presumptions, but it never, I I say never, I would say on the whole, almost never comes from actually what caregivers think about that person living with the condition. And so that's why it's even more heartbreaking. As somebody in the media, let's try to change the language around this. Um, Crystal, you mentioned uh, veterans and that we can learn best practice from other places. I think, Matt, you have experience of of working with veterans in the UK. yeah, I I was a uh, I was doing some national commissioning in the UK in the NHS, and I um, actually was responsible for setting up a, a service for veterans and um, uh, to support them, uh, uh, you know, reintegrate really uh, into civilian life. And um, they found that engaging with health services, um, people didn't understand their world, where they came from. Um, and we actually commissioned the service from a charity uh, of people who had been in those situations, who were relatable and who understood. Um, and I think that's the same with the rare disease community. Um, this feeling, um, when when you go through the rare disease pathway, uh, people feel very lost. They, they have multiple appointments, maybe have to see six or seven a specialist to get a diagnosis. On average, it can take five years. And when they get that groundbreaking, life-changing diagnosis, of course that affects them. It's normal. 
that that affects you and your whole family. Um, and one thing which really helps them is being connected into a community of people who understand. And I think that peer support coming from a community really helps make people feel grounded, uh, reduces some of these uh, the uncertainties which they face, enables them to process the information because the internet is a great thing, but it can be terrifying. Typing in some of the names of these conditions, you get almost the, the worst characteristics and you don't know the future and what it li lies there. So it plays on fears. So having, I think one of the most important thing at the point of diagnosis, well, two, is one, the support given at diagnosis that it empowers families and parents and caregivers and the individuals uh, to, to step forward in their future life. Mm -hmm. um, but also make, you know, make them make a connection with one of the national patient groups or or international patient groups like Lara's leading um, uh, with Eslo Stanley Society. So I think um, this this idea of peer support from people who 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 know and have been down the journey and maybe are a bit further ahead is is a real one of the things which um, is a is a protection factor really for our community and reduces the psychosocial risks. I want to turn to you, Paige, because uh, you've lived through with Jake um, this first diagnosis. Again, in your case, it was exceptional. I think perhaps that he was diagnosed so young and then you had a second diagnosis and then a third diagnosis came with autism. And I'm quite sure with um, rare diseases, some rare diseases wouldn't just come in one package, but they would have many fold, uh, well, many fold ripples in, in all sorts of ways, consequences. What is it like getting a diagnosis as a mother? Um, you know, just as everybody here has talked about today, I think once a family receives a rare diagnosis, they, they tend to experience the um, breadth of emotions from anger, shock, fear, denial. Um, you know, these, these emotions also come with sort of a realization that the life we know today is now not going to be the life we know tomorrow. Um, and there's no manual with rare disease. So I think a lot of the navigation families have to go through to try to figure out, you know, how they're going to take care of their child, how they're, you know, this child is going to rely on them. Um, I think there is, it, it, it's a hard thing to get the diagnosis, but it also, in our case, um, you know, unfortunately, we had a neonatologist who was training medical students and in the second week of the neonatal unit, um, he came by and said to the medical students, this one is bad. There's nothing we can do for him. Let's get in and let's get out. And that sparked my passion and my advocacy right there. I, I mean, I remember that day and that moment like it was yesterday. And I remember thinking, you know, that is, that is not the way you teach <laughs> medical students. So as we talk about changing media, you know, we want to also help healthcare providers because rare disease, you know, they can't know all of the rare diseases. Um, so partnering with professionals and helping them understand um, is important to me. And um, I think that it's also important to, to note that a rare disease diagnosis doesn't, you know, only impact the parents it impacts the entire family unit and I'm particularly passionate about siblings and the impact of a rare disease on siblings. Um, our daughter 
you know, there was an 11 year gap between them. So she sort of thought this new baby was her baby. Um, so they have a very close bond and, you know, he has shaped her life and her life's calling of what she does. Now she's a, um, getting ready to sit for her exam to be a board certified behavioral analysis analyst, sorry, um, to work with um, kids with special needs. So I think it's, it's definitely a tough thing to get the diagnosis, but it also, um, you know, as, as Matt mentioned, getting that peer support is important. Um, Getting your whole entire family help if they need it. Um, Mm -hmm. And there are, there are many things that we can do as, as advocates to change the way things are, you know, looking. I know we always say with Prader-Willi syndrome, it, it was um, discovered over 50 years ago, and we still do not have treatments for Prader-Willi syndrome. We have one treatment, um, which is growth hormone, but that does not address the significant and the most prevalent characteristic of Prader-Willi syndrome, which is hyperphagia or the inability to feel full. So we have to do better. Um, and, you know, mm-hmm. I think discussions like this help us get there. Yeah. Thank you for sharing your story. And uh, as you share it, I know that with that diagnosis and double and then triple diagnosis, um, it impacted you, as you say, the whole family unit, his sisters, well, of course, uh, the sibling effect. Um, it also changed your business life and your personal ambitions and you are very successful I know and Lara from the other side when you were diagnosed it changed your ambitions you spoke about being a photographer slash spy <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and again um, you know you have to mentally jump through a number of hoops and I'm quite sure it doesn't help when you have doctors coming along saying there's nothing we can do here so the power of language is enormously important when we're talking to people. But Lara, just talk us through, you know, from your experience. And again, you're an advocate, you, you, um, you're an academic, you, you, you do a lot of things. I, I encourage people to go onto your website and take a look at the various very nice photos, in fact, as well you have on the website. But just, um, you know, moving to another phase of life for that personal shift in your own mindset, you have to change what you thought was your future, whether as the, the person with that diagnosis or the family around that person. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, people underestimate how hard that is. And it, it can start earlier on, you know, not just with a career, it can start with people's education, how they attend school, how often, whether they then have to be homeschooled. Also for a parent, if they then have to homeschool their child, something they weren't planning for, does that then impact their career? You know, there's so so many domino effects of what can happen um, on, on what you thought your life would be. Even as simple as how you thought you would be a parent and your journey of what parenthood looks like and as someone that's just become a parent my daughter turned one on Monday and and living in the rare chronic space for 14 years now I still can't comprehend what that would feel like I I, I just can't comprehend what that would be like and I see it every day um, in others so it's still unthinkable even for me that that knows it so well through other people's stories so I just think that it, until it happens to you and until it's in front of you, A, you don't know how you're going to react. Um, a lot of fear, a lot of anxiety, a lot of questions. And and once that has passed, you're then like, okay, what now? 
And, you know, depending on the diagnosis, it could be, you know, that people may be faced with a shorter life expectancy than they once thought. And what do you want to do with the rest of your life? And for some people, it, it doesn't impact that, but it impacts how you live your life. And there's no help out there for that. You know, I've always said when you get diagnosed with a, a chronic or rare disease and a, a, a pathway, which let's face it, this isn't even done right at the moment, but let's just say in an ideal world, a pathway was set out for the physical care of that condition. Um, there should be an identical, identical pathway for the mental health and the psychological support of what that diagnosis means. And not everyone will take take you up on that but it has to be offered mm -hmm. you know you've just been told you're you're living with a condition that will never go away that you have to live with for the rest of your life whatever that will looks like and you're just sent home with a sheet or a printout and some numbers of support groups it's just not good enough it should be part of the the pathway of care that the psychological is taking care of as much as the physical and Crystal, so very well put there. Crystal, turning to you, because I know this is something that you feel so intrinsically passionate about. You were a sibling, you know, you, I don't want to delve into the, the family history. You've spoken about it a little bit at the top of the show, but you, you know what it's like to be in a family. You know what it's like to have that stress put on a family, to be living with it, the emotional impact, the financial impact. And, and as Paige, I think, said, it affects the most vulnerable of our society. I, I don't have the precise statistics, but I know the divorce rate is very high, of course, understandably, because the pressure on families is so great. But all of this said, and as Lara has so beautifully put, mm -hmm. how can that support for the mental health part be implemented? Yes, I'm so glad you asked and, and Laura for bringing, bringing also this topic to, to the forefront, because we use that word support um, and we all assume we mean the same thing. Right. But there's a beautiful article in Psychology Today. Uh, Kathleen Bogart um, was the, the PhD that, that authored the article. And it talks about the different kinds of support and the kinds of support that bring emotional relief are actually different than what we say in our uh, communities, rare disease and otherwise we're delivering. So let me give you an example. Tangible support and informational support. This is um, information about the disease. What is the disease? What are the symptoms? How do I manage them? Are there clinical trials? How do I get my insurance claims covered? How do I find the experts, right? These are sort of like left brain intellectual responses to how to manage the experience of living this disease. But that doesn't necessarily bring you emotional relief. Mm -hmm. it, it might it's it's a hierarchy of need you have to have to have that triage list of questions answered but in terms of your own emotional well-being what brings relief or in the family what brings relief is actually connecting at a heart level with someone that's willing to listen that someone is willing to not try to fix just listen to how you're feeling about this experience to go through this experience in companionship and so one of the ideas that we have and we've proven it out again and again over the last six years is that 
it's nice to set the disease at the door and step into an environment, into online support groups or in-person support groups where the focus actually isn't on the disease. It's on how you are processing emotionally that experience. And that's the foundation of what the Rare Givers movement is all about, is to highlight that there is a difference between these different kinds of support that we're bringing um, to our community and that we're creating, and that we need to create environments where we're witnessing each other. We're not trying to fix. We're accepting that there's hope and there's grief in the same human heart. Mm-hmm. And it sounds cliche, but we're complex, you know, that's what makes us human, right, mm-hmm. is our ability to empathize and our ability to handle the full range of emotions that we're going to feel about these medicalized lives. And and we have to start from the heart in these conversations and sort of get out of the left brain, you know, intellectualized fix because it's hurting us systemically as a as a community and also on a worldwide basis. Thank you, Crystal. Uh, I see Matt uh, shaking his head there in total agreement, uh, nodding rather than shaking, nodding in total agreement. Um, and I'm turning to you because, uh, again, I know this echoes a lot with the work that you do. Um, and when we were talking before this show, the word isolation came up a lot, a person feeling isolated. Matt, uh, you said that rare people, people with rare disease, they lean out of society. So again, in your experience, just echoing what we've heard from everybody else, uh, what do you do at your disc to help this? Um, so I don't think it's necessary that people lean out of society. Um, you know, you're, give, you're given a, a life-changing diagnosis which affects your whole future and that of those you love. Um, And, you know, if rare diseases are not very well known or understood, you know, you have very weird and wonderful names, which people can't even, and I can't even pronounce. Um, But when, you know, for example, neurofibromatosis type one or type two, you, you say that to your friends and family, that that affects, that's the diagnosis. They, they don't understand. Uh, whereas if you say, um, you know, oh, it's related to cancer, people have all been touched by cancer. And there's a greater level of, I think, probably people feel that they can know what to do and lean in. So I think when when you get a rare, di- a rare disease diagnosis, um, the support which you would expect from the nearest and dearest actually it's hard for them to process and understand, and you know, the severity. Uh, we talk about it being chronic. Actually, these are really complex conditions with multiple comorbidities, you know, uh, which you need a whole team of specialists from different hospitals in different countries to come together. Some conditions only affect five babies in, in Germany or in, in the UK a year, and the one person who knows is, you know, uh, finding that one person who knows can take forever. Well, on that so, point, actually, we, we clearly have that issue in, in Luxembourg. And I just want to bring in an email I have from Dr. Lilani here in Luxembourg. Um, to, to quote her exactly, international collaboration is important as Luxembourg is small and cannot solely rely on its national registries. We often lose patients to the borders. Mm-hmm. Um, I th- rare diseases, we say, don't no don't don't stop at borders mm-hmm. um 
there is a clear need for everyone, health services especially, to collaborate cross-border. We work in Eurodis with uh, the European Reference Networks, which connect uh, over 300 hospitals across the EU together. Um, to bring those specialists together to share their knowledge of those rare and complex cases, to build their collective knowledge so the expertise can travel, not the patient. Um, a lot of people are, are quite happy with when they get to find that specialist um, who knows. But 50% of our community have said, whilst our physical health needs are being met, the, the, our psychological and emotional needs aren't being met um, and that's the missing component at the moment, that thinking about someone holistically and putting that support in. Um, I think I was reflecting on what Crystal was saying. And for me, you know, having I, I, I had my knee done this year, you know, the care and support and interaction I had for my knee, you know, uh, was fine. But that that type of approach, it's not one size which fits all. When you have such a complexity of conditions, they need to have a different level of interaction and empathy in terms of communicating and empowering families to, to step forward on the journey uh, to self-support uh, and to, to be able to process this. And I think it's a journey of acceptance. Mm. I think um, Paige very eloquently articulated the range of emotions you feel. Um, it's it's like the emotions you go uh, deal with when you the grieving process, denial, depression, um, and and, and you, you have to get to a point of anxiety. Some people never get to that point because they don't even get a diagnosis. A big part of our community that living with that level of uncertainty is chronic, and it's never ending. And and healthcare professionals say, but you know. We can't find anything so maybe it, there's nothing there or it's all in your head we hear a lot um, and this destroys families this destroys relationships so when you talk about isolation uh, this type of impact seven out of ten people with a rare condition and their carers stop their professional activities or must reduce it we end up firefighting and crisis managing the complexity of the condition and then when we're not, we're alone. Mm. And when we're alone, we're separated from the people who should be supporting us. And actually having the community around us, the rare disease community, is, is I think is a real strength. Um, so I think it's, it's a really complex uh, 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 life which people live. Um, and the, the emotions are heightened on all levels. Mm. The joy, the happiness the pain uh, and the, the stress. Um, but we need to ensure that we can support people in a more, uh, in, 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 in the level of intensity mm. on the emotional side as much as the disease is complex. Lara, I know that, um, you know, again, thank you, Matt. Matt has spoken about this, this uncertainty, the chronic uncertainty. And a word that's very important to you is the power of validation to feel validated in how you feel because some rare diseases will present as invisible to an outsider, even a family member. And so mm -hmm. talk to us about the importance of validation for mental health. Yeah, I mean, it's it's absolutely essential. We we Most of our community at some point has been told it's in their head um, and are not believed. And I think if I look through just the EDS lens, but it's, you know, it can be said for, 
almost all rare diseases, it's highly multi-systemic. You go to your primary care doctor, your GP, and you may have a painful knee from a dislocation. You could have a stomach ache from IBS and your heart could be racing. Well, that doctor's going to look at you and go, you're anxious and you are hormonal because you're, you know, pubescent and, and all of these things and anything but let me look at this collectively and think what could be wrong. And so from that, you know, first hurdle, that primary care level is it really has to improve. And we're, we're working desperately hard to, to raise that education and to create pathways and to create red flags and when these things are coming together. But I think what's really important that, that hasn't really been touched on yet is many of rare diseases are genetic and the majority. And when you think genetic, that also means that usually, certainly in the EDS world, not only does a child have it, but a parent does too. And so then you've got the situation where you've got the parent who has all of the trauma, often the medical PTSD of their diagnosis and seeking it and it taking many, many years, decades often. And then they have a child and they can see in their child that they've got the same condition or they, they're presenting with the same symptoms. And there is that fear, oh my God, they're going to have to go through what I've gone through. And there is this desperation for them to get an, an earlier diagnosis than they got the answers that they need so that they can have a quality of life that perhaps they didn't have and through that process actually what's happening more and more is that parents are being accused of Munchausen's by proxy uh, over medicalization FII lots of different terms no matter where you are in the world but ultimately what's happening is children are being taken away from parents um, because they feel like they're over medicalizing their child's um, experience and that all of that is coming from a place of trauma and their experience and their odyssey to where they got to and there may be a sense of 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 that desperation that comes across but it's not because they're over medicalizing their child it's because they're desperate for them to not have the same experience and you know we've seen the most heartbreaking horrific examples of kids being taken away from parents and um, EDS just not thought of as what could be going on here, even though there's a diagnosis in the parent. So there's there's also this, especially with EDS, and I don't think it's unique to EDS, but because the hypermobile type of Ehlers-Danlos syndrome may, may, you know, we think is much more prevalent, we're seeing it more and more, and people just think that people are self-diagnosing on websites and forums, they're reluctant to diagnose it, we don't really understand why, um, and it's very frustrating. And again, it's back to that highly avoidable trauma and impact that people have got enough going on that they don't need these additional things that destroy families, cause suicide, cause children to not be growing up with their families. And it, it's just, it, it, it blows my mind every day that this is going on. Mm -hmm. mm. I, it's, it's truly traumatic on so many levels. And Paige, I want to turn to you because um, I know that you were CEO of Prader-Willi Syndrome Association and uh, you're a very strong, very capable, vocal, intelligent woman, but not every mother will have the gifts that you have. How can we as a society, as a global society, because as we've mentioned many times, rare disease has no borders, um, how can we help others in our community who don't have the voice that you have? That, that's a great question. Um, it's definitely something that I, I'm aware of and I'm passionate about. As you said, you know, I feel very blessed that I have a, a family and my husband's very supportive. 
Um, between my son's three diagnoses, diagnoses, we have about 10 specialists that we see, and that's on top of, you know, OT, PT, speech, uh, many other things that we have to juggle on a daily basis. Um, and, you know, we can do that together and we can share that, that responsibility. There are many, many rare disease families that are, you know, single families that are struggling. And we ha it has to start in the, you know, medical um, office to, to do that check with the parent. How are they doing? Um, not just always focus on the child. Um, because there are a lot of additional, um, you know, I don't know if I want to call them burdens, but that, that the families are taking on and, and the, you know, the travel, the coordination of care. I was just at a doctor's appointment last month in, in St. Louis, and our doctor said to us, you know, said to me, you need to stop being the care coordinator. You need to let your physicians coordinate with all these other physicians. And I said, well, that's a problem because our medical records um, system doesn't talk. And so, I, you know, I'm the one that is asked, when was the last test? What was the last, you know, thing that happened? Um, so th just that burden of having to know all of that knowledge too, um, it, it, it's just, there are many, many things that land on a parent or parents and we really have to look at their emotional health. Yeah, and then coming to you, uh, Crystal, this is what it's all about, really. Um, do you feel that still, even after COVID, when we had so much talk about mental health, there is not mm. enough talk about mm. the family unit and helping mm. the entire, and when I say family, I mean families come in every shape and size, you know, the caregiving unit around that usually child uh, with rare disease. Yeah, it, it's interesting. We we have an advisor, a global advisor, Rachel Halsall, who is a systemic thinker, right? So looking at big, sort of pull the lens back beyond the healthcare system, beyond even, you know, societal in, in, interventions and just pull the lens back and look at this, sort of examine it neutrally, Right. And the neutral examination is this. There's 350 million families on the planet that are living with a rare genetic disease, rare chronic and complex diseases, and there's zero cures. There's treatments for 5% of these 10,000, you know, identified rare diseases, but there are still in a hundred years of science are zero cures. And so generationally, my mother, who was a carrier of MPS, I am a carrier of MPS and I've passed it down now onto my daughter, Chloe, who when she goes to have a family will have to make very difficult choices. You've got multiple generations of families that are contending with the realities and the answers that they're being given is you know, let's get into clinical trial or let's start raising funds in order to fund research and science. And the answer is yes, we need to do all of those things. And I do believe in our lifetime, we will start seeing more treatments and even cures to rare diseases, especially with some of the gene therapies and things that are coming down, down the pike. 
Um, I worked at IBM for 10 years in life sciences, and we worked on data-driven drug development. So we don't have to do wet labs. We can simulate. We can use artificial intelligence to further the science very, very quickly. But in the meantime, we can bring emotional relief today. We don't have to wait for that process. And all we have to do is start broadening the awareness and including everybody in the conversation. So including the parents and the caregivers and all the extended family units and encouraging people to talk about their feelings, including the healthcare professionals. You know, instead of having a healthcare professional be the person with the answer, let's recognize that there's an emotional impact on these individuals as well. And let's create forums for them to be able to talk amongst themselves about the emotional impact, right? And then our young adult and adult patient community, you know, as a child, you've, you're looking to your elders to guide you emotionally through this process. But when you come into young adulthood and adulthood and life gets medical and things start getting really emotional, we need to provide a forum where we can be talking about those things. So, so you know, at Rare Givers, that's what we do every day. That's why we've put it all on a single page, the Rare Givers Emotional Journey Map. But we know we don't have the answer for everybody in the world, in the community. We're just starting to spawn the conversation, to, to plant a seed and to make it okay for us to say, I'm not okay. Emotionally, I'm not physically, I'm not okay. We know that. I'm not okay emotionally. I need help. And, and, and that doesn't have to be help. That emotional help can be a neighbor. It can be a trusted friend. It can be a, a, a pastor or a spiritual advisor. It can be changing the conversation in your own family to say, listen, I don't understand all the details of this disease, but I got to tell you, I'm over here emotionally freaking out. And that's what COVID did is it's opened the world to recognize that there's an opportunity to find relief by talking about our emotions. And celebrities are talking about it. Athletes are talking about it. People are talking more than ever. And so we just need to kind of make it okay to talk in our community about our emotional well-being. Oh, thank you, Crystal. I feel like I've had a, a lovely breath of fresh air as you've just been saying all of that. <laughs> Matt, I want to turn to you as, uh, you know, representing so much of Europe and you've seen how the different countries in, in Europe function. Uh, we are really focusing on the mental health of the person, child, young adult, adult with the rare disease, but also of the whole unit around them. Now, we've also spoken about the medical services, the the triage and more of, of different types of medical intervention that a family will need. How can that be more joined up across Europe? Um, so I, I just want to go back really to and um, build on what Crystal said. Um, uh, there's a there's a range there's there's a lot of risks um, around risk factors which impact our lives when we're living with a rare condition, um, but there's there's some uh, things which we can do to strengthen um, uh, um, the the factors which can protect us, and um, because we know there's a big body of evidence with the connection between physical health care and, men and mental health and well-being. Um, actually, one of the real protection factors is when your physical health is 
improved and it has a positive effect on our mental well-being so first and foremost access to uh, the right specialist uh, the right treatment um, early can improve the whole well-being of the whole family um, and that, that that's that's absolutely key um, but with medical care in in what we I said earlier that fifty percent of our community said that they weren't offered any psychological support um, in when they receive medical care. As a community, we don't need more mental health services. We don't need you know uh, uh, so additional services which no country can afford. Um, no healthcare system can really push that at the moment. But what we do need is actually that uh, the, our, our medical care, which we receive, uh, can be enhanced uh, to be more psychologically informed. That mm. um, you know that could be having a psychologist in the team, but it's about whether you're a specialist nurse or a surgeon or uh, whoever um, in that team that you use inclusive communication involving the individuals in their own care, uh, uh, talking about. Uh, broadening out from the physical uh, side uh, uh, in in the, in the consultation, but looking at an individual, seeing their age of development, um, uh, their stage of development, their age, their their the stage of which the condition is at, what's the treatment they're having, seeing all those factors together, but also looking going thinking about the family unit. Is this a single uh, a single parent family who is there to sit with the, the mum or the dad at a point of diagnosis and support them? What's the support system around that? Are there financial challenges going on? I think we need to take a more psychosocial approach within our medical services, but that's about it being more psychologically informed. So I think that's a real push for us. And I just want to do a call out, you know, our I think our community do some great things. We managed to get a UN resolution passed to for people living with the rare disease uh, and their families uh, in a couple of years ago. And in that UN resolution, there's a call by the UN on member states to develop psychosocial programs for people with, living with a rare condition. I mean, that's coming from the horse's mouth in many ways i don't believe i said that on radio the un being the horse's mouth but <laughs> hey um but but that but that is about enhancing medical care to be psychologically informed well, congratulations on that UN resolution. That really is a, a wonderful uh, way to to have your final word. Lara, turning to you in a couple of minutes, can you wrap up your feelings on this subject? Oh, no pressure. Um <laughs> I think I think we've come a long way, um, but we have much further to go. I think the problems we have are systemic. I think that they are global. I think that they impact every country in different ways, but we share the same challenges. I think that the rare disease community is one of the most incredible, inspiring and hopeful group of people I've ever met. Um, there are people in there personally fighting to find their own cures. And despite knowing that zero have been found, they still do it every single day. I think we need more funding from government agencies. I think that we need more awareness, more education at uh, a level of um, school, college and universities. It needs to be more than a paragraph. I think that although, as the Adders Down or Society logo is, um, we are a group of zebras, I think it needs to be 
thought of more that zebras are unique because no no two zebras have the same stripes but when you know when you see a zebra you know it's a zebra and that's what we need to get to with rare diseases so that people recognize them when they walk through the door when they hear those hooves they don't think horses they do think zebras and they start to understand that there are as many people as crystal said living with these as aids and cancer combined aids and cancer has had so much attention so much funding it's time for rare disease to have the same well that's a very powerful ending statement from you lara page Oh, I, I don't know that I can say anything that Laura didn't say. Um, she That was beautiful and, and absolutely truth to every word she said. Um, I do agree that the rare disease community is strong. Um, and, and I think just remembering that every person with a rare disease is a person and that, you know, we need to understand each person and help each person in each family and um, I think that people like you, Lisa, that are helping us get the word out on emotional support and, and what is needed, um, we need to do more of that. But um, I, um, I agree with everything Laura said. <laughs> Thank you. And we wish you uh, and all of your family, particularly Jake, a, a wonderful weekend ahead. Crystal, final word to you. Well, yes. I mean, I, first of all, thank you. And this panel has just been extraordinary and I, I'm um, honored to be part of it. Um, I just have to give a huge shout out again for Rare Disease Day, which is coming up on the rarest day of the year this year. Uh, Rare Disease Day is always the last day of February. And this year it happens to be a leap year. So February 29th. Um, but every year after that, it'll be the last day of February. And there are international awareness activities going on in your, um, certainly in your countries and likely in your communities, but I would just call to your heart. If you notice someone around you that seems to be energetically or even physically sort of in a moment, a, a low moment or a feeling, just ask just ask, be human and ask, how are you? Talk to me, what's happening? You know, be be open-hearted. Our community of human beings has an opportunity, I think, to support ourselves in a, a really unique way from this day forward. And so um, take care of yourself, um, take care of your family, take care of your community and uh, and just thank you. Thank you very much for this, uh, this spotlight on rare disease. Well, thank you all so much, really. Thank you. It's a joy to listen to your hope, your optimism. And as uh, Lara said, it's such a dynamic community. Paige said it as well. So many good things, even though lives are turned on their heads of what might once have been hoped for. Uh, the hope doesn't go away. It's just uh, rerouted. So thank you so much, all of you. And of course, I will link to all of the various associations and to all my dear listeners, if you want to write in and talk about this, talk about your experience here across Europe, across the world, because I know we have listeners all over the world. Uh, we would love to hear that. We would love to hear your experience and what you want to see done better, because of course, rare disease is coming up. Uh, we're all Debra's in one way or another, as uh, we can see behind Lara there on her bookshelf. Um, and we, we just want to hear your story. We want to hear that and put it out there in the community because, of course, validation comes from being heard. And at least at least I can help on that front. Thank you all. And we wish you a wonderful week ahead.
Lisa Burke on RTL Today Radio.